Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part nine of Why I Am Catholic, and we're calling this one Pool Rules. As for the failures of the church, the faithful and the faithless, the believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians, have failed to be perfect in every era of human history and every situation and in every nation since the beginning of time. And on that, all groups should be able to agree. And if you don't believe me, you haven't read the Old Testament or the Greek epics or Native American myths because all takes are full of fallen man. The news from last evening where I live was full of overdoses, murders, domestic disputes, etc. We cannot keep the commandments, not without help from above. And this is kind of the whole point of the person of Jesus and why he came, in case you didn't know. And many today actually don't know that. It's an interesting time because millions of people have not heard the gospel or have no idea what it says. And they especially don't know what it means. Um, he brought us the second part of what we need called the Beatitudes. But people are less aware of these than they are of the commandments. Um, I kind of think of it as like, the commandments are more dramatic. They are they tell us not to do something in many in seven of them. So those are more interesting. It's kind of like how everyone reads Dante's Inferno, but skip Purgatorio and Paradiso. Uh, because Inferno is more like dramatic and violent. Um, we don't read the rest of the book. We just kind of read the part where that stirs us up. Um so the commandments are like a balance beam that we have to walk on above a shark tank. Uh, but the commandments with the Beatitudes is like a nice sidewalk with a guardrail above the shark tank where we can relax and be joyful and not be constantly worried about falling off the beam. Um, we cannot live the Beatitudes by themselves either. We need the commandments with the Beatitudes. Otherwise, we just discard the idea of sin altogether. Um, we need to use the cheat code. And there is a cheat code, but it's not as easy as what video game developers build into their systems. The way to win is to stop trying to cheat. We have to take up our cross and follow Christ. I, I think what people fail to understand is that Christ showed us how to live in the devolving of Christendom that we're going through through our obsession with knowledge, we have to unlearn and invert nearly everything that our American teachers have taught us to value from public school to Hollywood to government. Christ's way of living is an inversion, an inversion of Americanism. And that is actually why Americanism was called out as a heresy by the church in 1899. Uh, Pope Leo XIII, he didn't just go on an offensive against the errors of Karl Marx in, um, his famous encyclical um, of on the new things called Rerum Novarum. That was a prophetic encyclical that predicted all of the horrors of communism, which played out exactly as expected. Um, Leo XIII also called out the errors that Thomas Jefferson gave birth to uh, with his mistress, the pursuit of happiness. This might be a newsflash to some. Um, the church is neither capitalist nor socialist. Instead, the church is for both the commandments and the Beatitudes. Again, Catholicism is a both and religion, except for when it comes to ideologies. Then it is a neither nor. Sometimes I think we focus on the commandments too much and forget about the Beatitudes. 
A common critique of Catholics is that they are too dogmatic, too rigid, and act like Pharisees. But oddly enough, while, yes, Jesus does scold the Pharisees frequently, the reason he does is telling. There's this very interesting line in Matthew 23 when Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do what they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. So this is the classic practice what you preach, but it's the first part of that that really interests me. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now, that can be passed over easily. But Jesus says something really, really important here. The Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. The church today refers to the seat of Peter or the chair of Peter. The Pharisees, according to Jesus himself, have authority to interpret sacred scripture. And this, dear listener, is why the Pharisees bear the brunt of Jesus' anger in the Gospels. God chose Moses, he chose Moses' successors, and way down the line, they are the Pharisees. Notice that it is not the Sadducees, or Jesus would have said that they sit on Moses' seat. He does not say the Sadducees sit there, or the Herodians, or anybody else. This idea of Moses' seat must be attended to, because later in Matthew 28, Jesus says before ascending to heaven, something extremely important about that authority again. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a great parting thing to say. Who could, who but God could say something so perfect on his way uh, ascending to heaven. So, The Pharisees held the seat of Moses, and then Jesus was given all authority in heaven and earth. He's like taking it back. I'm here. I'm in charge now. But what about when he's gone? Then who has authority to interpret and defend the word of God? Who will the Holy Spirit be with? Well, that was covered in Matthew 16, the famous verses 18 and 19. Simon is given a new name, Peter, the rock, upon who he will build his church. Here's those two verses. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So let's recap here. Jesus states plainly that there is to be a church. One church, Peter is the leader. There is a direct commission by name happening there. There's not even any wiggle room for this on interpretation. Further, nothing will ever defeat the church that is founded on the rock, Peter, even though that church may be attacked by hell itself. There is only one church founded on Peter, and that is the Catholic Church. Okay, fine. So we know there is to be a church. We also know that baptism is important and even critical to salvation. The Eucharist is as well, which Jesus spoke ample words about at the Last Supper and in the Bread of Life chat after he fed the 5,000 people. And in this verse above, we know that confession is important because in order to bind and loose sins, you have to speak them out loud to someone. As far as I know, the the apostles could not read minds like Jesus could. 
Although Peter does seem to be able to do that in Acts of the Apostles with Ananias, but that's another story. Um, in Matthew 18, verses 18 and 19, Jesus also states this binding and loosing power. And he also says that his followers must gather in Jesus' name, meaning there should be what? A meeting. A meeting. Gather, meeting, church, mass, you get together. If we need to do do this in remembrance of him, the Eucharist, we need to get together, hence the liturgy, all these things. So he says in Matthew 18, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Now, this brings me to a point about the Gospel of Matthew that has led me to many hours of pondering and displeasure, which I will write about later in a different series, or this will never end. I am teeming with words here, so I need to resist commenting on what has been done to the Gospel of Matthew over the last 150 years by mostly 19th century Germans and now mostly American atheist scholars of tearing down Matthew because of these important phrases. But let's get back to the commandments and the Beatitudes and why both are needed. Uh, living by the commandments and the Beatitudes can only come through following Jesus. You can't have one without the other. Otherwise, you end up a Pharisee, a legalist on the one hand. And on the other hand, you are all free love and dope. And Jesus becomes the big Lebowski, the dude. In fact, if you watch The Big Lebowski, you can see the problems of Pharisees and Libertines rather plainly. And actually, this is really interesting because I've watched The Big Lebowski many times. Walter, the dude's friend, is a jerk obsessed about the rules. And he even pulls a gun out when somebody breaks the bowling rules and says um, and goes off about the rules. And the dude, on the other hand, cares for no rules whatsoever. No, he colors outside the lines on everything. Um, so Walter is all justice and rules and is a hypocrite. And the dude is kind of a buffoon that stands for nothing at all. The third character, Donnie in The Big Lebowski, the forgotten third character, is kind of the Jesus character. And indeed, he is indirectly killed by Walter and dude's dispute with the nihilists which wouldn't have happened had they not been both so hell-bent on justice, Walter, and Mercy, the dude. Donnie is really martyred in the movie for their sins. So we need to be like Donnie a bit, humble, peaceful, seeking righteousness while following the rules. He's also an excellent bowler. Um, he's the only one who's always getting a strike in the movie. But anyway, forget about Donnie. Forget about Lebowski. Uh, be like Jesus. When you wake up in the morning, surrender to God. Be grateful for breath and ask Jesus, what are we going to do today? To follow him requires surrender and obedience. Freedom requires forgetting the self. Now let's cut to the chase. Nobody loves a list of rules. Rules alone do not inspire. No one ever built a cathedral because of a list of rules any more than the local swimming pool was built to hang up the sign of pool rules. I've used this metaphor before, I know. Kids do not go to the swimming pool on a hot summer day to celebrate the rules. Hooray, no glass bottles. No. 
No one reads the book of Leviticus and throws their hands up in prayer, as I've said before. Kids go to the pool to play and cannonball and scream and splash. And later they appreciate the rules because they realize it would be a nuthouse without it. This to me is the fundamental error of the Pharisees. And Catholics can become Pharisaical very quick if they, if they think the early Christians were gathering just to celebrate a list of rules instead of cannonballing into a pool with Jesus. They came, the early Christians came for community, beauty, joy, truth. St. Peter's Basilica and Notre Dame were not built so that we could hang up a sign that read, no running. Uh, they were built because people experience a union with God that unshackles them from life, frees them of this competitive mimetic desire, and it makes us free in a way that the pool or drinking or sex or money or trophies can never even come close to reaching. The funny thing about the rules is that once you find the key that opens the door and you follow Christ, only then do the rules make sense and you actually want to follow them. You even yearn to follow them because it would please God to do so. I've often marveled at the act of contrition. One of them that I say is, um, is um, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee, God, because of uh, just punishments, but mostly because it offends thee. Now, at first, you may not understand what that means until you really come to love God, love Jesus. You do feel like you offend God when you lie, when you do something wrong. You don't want to lie ever anymore because you want to please God. That is a switch that you can't just flip in your head until you have the relationship with Jesus. You even yearn to follow the rules because it would please God to do so. Um, the, the pool, the swimming pool was built for joy. But if there were no pool rules, it would be chaos and no one would want to swim there. Um, lawless pools with loud drunks and kids running wild, they end up as empty pools. And suddenly, once you believe, uh, the joy um, of singing goes right along with the requirements of fasting. The prayer where the heart surges toward God goes right alongside confession and penance. That's the miracle that happens, which I will keep repeating on this site and blog and podcast until I move to my cave someday following the leads of St. Benedict or St. Anthony of Egypt, where there's no internet. Um, that'll probably never happen, but we're all failures to some degree, and we deal with our human flaws in different ways. Uh, this is the problem of sin. We're not Jesus, so we sin. We have our fallings. In order to feel better, um, what we tend to do is elevate our side, um, out, and we get into this competition. And out of this competition, scapegoats are born. Um, depending, even if we're on one side, if we're on presumptive side or despairing side, we still have our scapegoats. We want to scapegoat and point fingers at the failures of our opponents. The notion to blame is always inserted into our heads. It's inserted into there like a penny into a vending machine, put there as a thought from somewhere. Now, I can tell you where that somewhere thought comes from. It doesn't come from you. For many years, I assumed thoughts came from myself, but the conception of thoughts have outer origins. In fact, to conceive a thought means to have it like put into you. It's conceived in you. It is from the devil who is the divider, the accuser, the distractor, the deceiver. Uh, there, I said it. The devil is real. It's always a relief just to say it out loud. 
it's nice to stop dancing around these things and just say it. Um, the devil is real. The favorite perennial scapegoat for all sides is the church, as in the Catholic church, because it's kind of an easy target. Um, everything about it is public. It's published. Uh, there's no secrets really about the church. I, I can't imagine there's any secrets left. It's been around for 2000 years. It would be stunning if there was a secret left. Um, the catechism pretty much publishes everything you can get the Roman Missal, you can get other books, um, you can get books on exercise, you can get whatever. Um, but it's always the main target. And I mean, all sides are on the attack of this church. E even Catholics attack the church relentlessly from both the liberal progressive side and the traditional rad trad side, what they're calling it right now, or the conservative side. Um, after a while, when you see so much hatred directed at the church, it should start to make you wonder. It should start to make you wonder of why it's always attacked. Why should it make you wonder? Well, why is there so much hatred against the church? Is it because they say that abortion is wrong? I don't think so. Is it because they say that marriage is between a man and a woman? I don't think that's true. I don't think that's it. Is it because they reprimanded Galileo? Is it because of the Crusades? Now, there are, there are hundreds of these little reasons, but none of them are the real reason. None of those things are the real reason. The real reason is because God granted the church authority on interpreting faith and morals until Jesus returns. And we really, really hate anyone telling us how to live. In other words, when Jesus said the Pharisees were on Moses' seat, he gave the keys to Peter after that and Peter's apostolic succession has the authority until he returns. We all actually hate authority in one way or another, but that is exactly what Jesus claimed. And he deputized the apostles. He ordained them with Peter as the leader. I mean, even scripture alone interpreters have to dance around the fact of Jesus giving the keys to Peter and Peter being the rock of the church, the foundation. Furthermore, you have to pretend Peter never lived in Rome and do all kinds of textual criticism, historical criticism, and other rain dances to try and undo the fact that the church was founded on Peter and Peter took his seat in Rome and was crucified in Rome as was, and Paul was beheaded there. Um, we hate authority so much that we'll do anything to tear it down or avoid it. And that's what's happening. It's happening in academia, heavy duty for a long time. Um, it's happening among the Protestants. It's happening among atheists. It's happening everywhere. And it has been. It has been happening this way, way back, even in early writings of the church fathers, the attacks were coming heavy and strong then. They've been coming for as long as the people have been around. And this is precisely what the devil does. It's really the first line from the serpent over and over and over again, as he said to Eve, did God really say dot, dot, dot? That, that is his opening phrase, and that is his unending hymn of rebellion. His battle hymn of rebellion is planting this thought. Did God really say, um, if you have ever tried to stop, I don't know, smoking, vaping, drinking, um, looking at porn, watch when the thought comes into your head. Just watch when the thought comes into your head. Be aware when it comes in is, I might like to do this again. Why, why shouldn't I be able to do this? That is the, your equivalent of the, did God really say dot, dot, dot to Eve? You have to arrest those thoughts, by the way. 
that's how you fight it. You have to be aware of it, stop it in place and cast it out, chuck the weed out of the garden. Now, when Jesus gave Peter the keys to the church, he chose a leader and gave him and the apostles the authority to bind and loose sins. This is really irritating to people because it means that someone has authority and it's not them. And the reason we dislike the idea is because we, each of us, wants to be the king or queen. Thus, the claim to authority over faith and morals becomes a target just as it did in the Garden of Eden when the authority of God was questioned and rejected. And of course, you can see the Israelites do this repeatedly in the book of Exodus and the rest of the uh, books of Moses. And you can see it happen like on wildfire in the book of Judges and Kings and so on. Um, now, I know for any of my Protestant friends who read or listen to this, they will disagree and they will assume that for 1,500 years, the church was in the wrong and only the Reformation brought Christianity back to life, gave it mouth to mouth, and it restored the church to what it was supposed to be in its earliest form, the first 200, 300 years. There's always this argument that something went awry. There's never a really point that it went awry because if you go actually read the Church Fathers, they are very Catholic in almost in everything they do. Um, but there's always this myth that somewhere it went wrong, like when Constantine became emperor or when Cyprian or someone, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of um, arguments. But the funny thing is the church lasted for 1,500 years until the Reformation through every bit of bloodshed, spiritual battle, doctrinal battle, um, thousands of saints and martyrs. Uh, there's just so much history there. You really have to read it. You, you can't just assume Christianity began at the year 1517, there was a massive, massive um, energy and effort of the Holy Spirit to maintain and build this and basically conquer the world. Um, it was just when the printing press arrived that <clears throat> everyone could get a Bible. No one had them before. There was no such thing. It would have cost you three years of wages. One of the attacks on the church was that uh, they used to uh, chain the Bible to the, the altar like so that no one could could read it. But the real reason was that there wasn't many around and they were extremely expensive. So you had to keep it. It was like a, a, a very valuable thing to have. They couldn't just have it sitting there. Someone would take it. You couldn't afford another one. So you had to have the scriptures. So you get these weird attacks. Um, but what, it, what they assume a lot is that all of these spiritual battles and bloodshed from 30, B, 30 AD onward was for a church that was on the wrong track somehow, like that it wasn't until Protestantism and the Reformation came to be that we had any sort of semblance of what Jesus really meant, which to me is ludicrous. The early church was a Catholic church, and the more I read of the early church history, the more it's clear that the doctrines and the catechism we use today matches with what Jesus and the apostles believed. And as John Henry Newman famously said, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. He was a Protestant who converted and one of the, probably one of the greatest writers I've come across. Um, he's, it's almost, it's difficult for me to even read some of this stuff, honestly. But here's the thing. Um, I actually think that even Protestants who hate the Pope or they want to see the church destroyed, they really should be wary of this urge to blame Catholics because if they pray or they want this to see the demise of the church and the Pope, you can bet that the next domino to fall is your local Bible-believing neighborhood church 
or your local church of Christ or your second or third Baptist, you know, uh, however many versions there are. Um, because the only keeper of doctrine in those, in those little churches um, is sometimes just what's in the pastor's head, or maybe he's got a three ring binder or a website or the next vote at the annual conference. So if, if they want to see the church fall, it's, it might be one of those like stabbing yourself um, in order to think you cured the cancer, but you killed yourself. Um, Chastity is what's currently on the chopping block for many Protestant groups. And the faith of the early church is being flung aside for the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist of right now. That's always the danger, I think. Um, of course, this is an argument even in the Catholic Church because people want to stick to the doctrines and some progressives, progressives want to throw it all out, having no idea of history of what the, what the early church went through to establish the doctrines to defeat heresies. Um, it's really a crazy thing to hear modern people say that we should just change the catechism when this has been the faith and morals that has sustained the church through every age of every violent thing for the last 2000 years. The church has withstood empire after empire attacking it. But yeah, let's throw it all out. Great idea. Okay, so the long history of half-truths being told about the Catholic Church will only blow up in the face of anti-Catholic Christians in the end. Why? Because we are all at the root, brothers in Christ. We are all drinking from the same vine. But here's my belief. The last stand of Christianity will be made in the bark of Peter, the Catholic Church, not in your local pastor's three-ring binder or in the Southern Baptist Convention or in one of the Lutheran synods or in the first, second, or third Baptist Church. And if the bark of Peter goes down, which it can't, um, then so shall all other boats, because the focal point of the anger always lands on the Catholic Church. And if the gates of hell's, hell were to prevail against the Catholic Church, which can't actually happen because Jesus said so, then all of the denominations that came after the Catholic Church will lose their boogeyman. And then who becomes the boogeyman? They do. Then they will become the boogeyman and they will crumble quickly under the weight of the world. The church, I believe, is in the world, but not of this world. And Jesus guaranteed that his followers would be hated, and they most certainly are. But that only encourages us to keep speaking, to keep partaking in the sacraments, and to keep praying, praying to Mary and praying to our statues, as they detract, as the detractors like to say. By the way, we don't pray to statues. I've linked in like seven different episodes now to a Catholic.com article about that. So the next time you hear that we pray to Mary or pray to our statues, um, yeah, just go to catholic.com and look that up for me. As for the unbelievers, the second commandment of Jesus to love others as I have loved you, that's a very important part of that. Um, that second commandment has taken precedent over the first commandment of Christ, which is to love God. And here's the problem with that. When love of God and his word gets put into second place, and given a silver medal, then love thy neighbor attempts to take the podium, the gold medal. Unfortunately, this doesn't work. Jesus said that, and it's also in Deuteronomy in that order, or is it numbers? I don't know. Unfortunately, you can't change the order. You cannot flip the order to love thy neighbor and then love God. You see this happen all the time. Um, there's a reason for the order. The imitation of Christ is not a game with optional modes of play. It's guidance for the salvation of your soul. 
So much has been forgotten in the distractions and fragmentation of modern thought. And this is why you now see things like pride flags outside of Methodist and ELCA churches that would make the Wesley brothers and Martin Luther's, I think their heads would just fall off. They would just fall, their heads would just fall to the ground. It's honestly hard to imagine a greater insult to their names and legacy than what has happened in their churches now. But because their own step to form these churches was one of protest, it's not terribly surprising that the protesters are now protesting the early, earlier protesters. And this again goes back to the beginning and illustrates exactly why the odd story in the Garden of Eden has such lasting power. I've also written about this as Lord of the Flies, uh, using Lord of the Flies as an example for how um, these these uh, these rebellions happen with Ralph and Jack. You can see it in the ancient world with um, the succession myth of, say, Uranus and his children and Zeus eventually comes to power or the Baal cycle. You see the same thing happening in Protestants where new denominations spring up all the time. It's because the old God is dead. They invent a new one. Now we got our own doctrine. Um, they take down the boss. The old boss um, goes away. Now we have a new story, new propaganda, new tale. Of this is what's right. And then somebody else comes along and protests again. I believe there's something in the, um, who was that writer? James Fraser with the golden bow where the slayer of the slain is now the slayer or something. Um, it's kind of that whole idea where, um, but the, the thing is in the Christian world, the one God still exists, the most high God that he never lost a battle. There is no sub God that took him over the same with the church. There's one church, the sub churches are the ones that have said they are the true one are not the right ones. Sorry. But as far as the two commandments, obedience to God must be first. Loving God must be first. You can't have a national flag or a club or an organization and certainly nothing political higher than loving God first. None of those things can provide the foundation needed. If Jesus said that not one letter of the law would be undone, which he did, meaning the commandments, then how on earth can you skip Sunday mass for youth sports or claim that sex outside of marriage is allowed he was very clear on marriage. It's probably the most clear thing he had in the whole New Testament. You can only do that if you're ignoring what he says. And the church was established to defend and follow this example. Now, I'm not pretending that I have lived up the commandments at all. I haven't, but I go to confession. And I try to get back on the right trail, the orthodox path. Um, to argue against marriage and chastity means you have to throw out the gospel. And if you start throwing out parts, you've thrown out all of it. It comes as a package. Moreover, it only makes sense as an entire package. The baby and bathwater are both out on the lawn now in those churches because they have rejected the gospel and called it love. But what they really mean by love is often lust or we just want to do what we want to do. Don't tell me what to do. Many people have forgotten that Jesus was a celibate man his whole life. And he ardently, clearly stated that there is to be one marriage in life. And if you aren't married, you're not supposed to have sex. No one wants to hear that. I know no one wants to hear it, but it's incredibly loud and crystal clear if we just take a minute to open up the book and actually look at the words. The only thing the church is saying that makes people so angry is really the exact words of Jesus in Mark 6, where he lists out the sins we're not supposed to do, which we already know anyway, because our conscience tells us we can arrive at that fairly naturally. It's remark remarkable, really, that just repeating the gospel words as they are written can cause such madness among us lusty modern people. 
And that is how you can tell that we are under a kind of slavery to our passions. The same happens when you try to take away an addict's drugs or when a wealthy person's finances collapse. Uh, when the devil finds the right bait for you, for each of us, he keeps using it and he sets the hook deep and you only feel it once you try to fight it. In, in this era, um, to quote Shakespeare, to modify a quote, methinks the protesting hath gone on too long. That's from uh, Hamlet. Doesn't Gertrude say methinks, somebody says Hamlet says, methinks the lady doth protest too much. That's what I think is happening. Methinks, methinks the protesting hath gone on too long. And each protesting generation tries to remake the world anew in its own desires. That's why we keep getting spin-off of spin-off of spin-off of these churches that just keep changing the doctrine, changing the doctrine, changing the doctrine. I, I've said before, it's like happy days. By the third spin-off, it was so bad, it had to stop. It just had to end. And this is why the saying rings true that a church that marries the age it finds itself in will find itself a widow in the next. That's a fact. This is the logical conclusion of the two solas, sola scriptura and sola fide, faith alone and scripture alone. With, with faith alone, you can do whatever you want because you were saved. You're already saved. With scripture alone, you can interpret the book by yourself, however you like, which is being proved out right now before our eyes. If you want to throw out chastity, it's gone. Poof. You want to sacralize greed? As you wish, says Kenneth Copeland like Wesley in The Princess Bride, as you wish, whatever you want. You want to rid yourself of the Eucharist and just focus on preaching? Welcome to the party, Zwingli, and all you other random people who want to start your own church. The thing is, every heresy since Christ rose from the tomb has been brought back. It's played out again and again, thanks to the Reformation, but mostly because of sola fide and sola scriptura. You can argue yourself into any position because, well, why not? If you're saved by faith, actions don't matter. If traditional interpretations of scripture doesn't quite match your desires, your wants, then you can hammer it intellectually into the shape you like. We know we can do that. If you've ever met lawyers, they can paint you in the corners over anything. That's what they're trained to do. In fact, it's also interesting that I believe Calvin was trained as a lawyer and I think Luther was too. Anyway, works. Works? Works like doing things? Works mean nothing. Works are optional. And as soon as you cut out the physical, as soon as the sacraments are not needed, you've cut the body from the soul because the body is what carries out works. In fact, to me, if there is one damning bit of evidence against Protestantism shedding of the sacraments is that COVID. It, COVID came and proved that church attendance is not necessary unless you are Catholic or Orthodox. They have the Eucharist too. I don't really talk about that much. Um, but Protestantism doesn't really require church attendance because you don't need to do works. The internet and streaming video seems to be God's humorous way of proving that four walls in a sermon make not a church because now everyone can stay home to watch it online. This is a really interesting development to me. When COVID came and the lockdown started, it presented this fact in full because a community gathering to hear a sermon is only as compelling as the speaker, the preacher, and if the mouthpiece can be piped into the ear alone, 
then getting dressed and driving to church is not needed. However, with the Catholic Mass, attendance is required. You cannot do confession over Zoom. That is a no-go. And you most certainly cannot receive the Eucharist through an iPhone. I don't care what attachment they put on there. You can't do that. You can't teleport a Eucharist. You have to go gather. Jesus told us to gather. So I know why people gather, but I know many, many people after COVID now sit there and watch their local evangelical preacher, or more likely, they watch the best preacher in the country on Sunday on YouTube or whatever, versus their local guy or gal who is not quite as good as that that one in California or Texas or wherever. You don't need to go to the one in the local community um, because you just go to the best one. As for Catholics, you just go to the one that a priest that's ordained who who has the um, the ordination and the ability to set, uh, do the Eucharist. Like that's what you go for. We don't go for the homily. I mean, the homily is great if it's good and mass is much, um, I'd say more interesting when you have a good preacher, but that's not the centerpiece. So body and soul are required in the Catholic church. And this is a great feature of the church. And it's one of these ways that the church always persists through history. It lasts because it's body and soul. It's whole. Now, while I'm here, it's worth noting that Jesus isn't here in the flesh with us anymore, but he is risen. So that means we must act as his arms and legs now. Um, St. Therese of Lisieux in her A Story of a Soul wrote this great thing that we're all different parts of the body of Christ. And she said she always wanted to be the arms or the legs. And then she realized, no, I'm the heart. Uh, Saint, she's great. Um, it's It's a good read. It's a little... It's not my favorite book, um, but I know a lot of people have their lives changed by St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, um, and especially the part where she says, I, I realized I was the heart. Um, we can use our individual bodies like cells in the mystical body. Our bodies can move around. We can use our bodies to feed the poor or to carry out sinful actions. We can do either one of those. We have free will. We can cooperate with sin or cooperate with grace. Ideally, we move toward using it for God's purposes rather than our own. Socialists understand that the body is needed to do good things. So they have half of this whole thing figured out, except they deny the soul. Protestants have the soul and faith part figured out, but can't quite factor in the body because it's not really needed. Put them together and you have something more whole, body and soul, and it's called the Catholic Church. I don't believe that scripture alone or faith alone jives with the gospel. Otherwise, when you're on your third marriage, or looking at porn, or having extramarital sex, you get angry when the church merely points out the words that Jesus said. Simply reminding others what Jesus said about marriage gets people really fired up. It's not like the church made any of this up. Um, Jesus said these things and the apostles wrote them down. So merely saying what Jesus said invokes rage from many unbelievers and protesters because they've already decided that Jesus is some watered-down hippie teacher, um, but he's a knife that divides people. He was clearly offensive. Nice people don't get crucified. 